Well, we can kind of, you know, d diverge there for a bit. Well, because it's not a divergence. It's, it's this what is you were like, just you know, about. this is stupid. Okay. Do you want? Okay. I uh, let me, if not for you, for whoever happens to listen to this, let me explain what panpsychism is, or let me try and do. Yeah, sure. Let me try and do justice to it. Okay. So, panpsychism is essentially just the idea that whatever it is um, that it takes to make a mind is present at the fundamental level. And there are different ways of thinking about this. So some people have likened panpsychism to mentalism. Now, mentalism is the idea that the fundamental substance of the universe is the mental. Um, so you might think of, of something like a, a Hindu um, framework as, as taking that to be the case. You know, the fundamental thing, that which everything else is built out of, is the mental or is consciousness. Um, and everything above that is therefore built from that. So the physical emerges from the mental, right? That's mentalism. Other people have said that panpsychism is like idealism. And there are different kinds of idealism as well, right? But the kind of idealism that people mean is essentially that there is no um, reality as we apprehend it. That is all the construct of our mind. Um, and, the, and they don't mean that in the trivial sense, in which it is actually kind of true according to a Bayesian, uh, you know, Bayesian brain version of, of, of a consciousness theory. They basically mean that if there were no minds, there would be no reality at all. So reality is created and stabilized by minds. Okay, so panpsychism is, is not necessarily either of those things. The way I see it is that there is a soft panpsychism and a hard panpsychism. Um, and soft panpsychism is simply the belief that whatever it takes, it's kind of the way I already phrased it, whatever it takes to make minds exists at the most fundamental level of the universe. Now, I consider that to be trivial, which means it's true, and it's obviously true. Hard panpsychism, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you see yeah. that, right? If you're a monist, you cannot escape that. Now, hard panpsychism, which is, I think, what most people think of when they hear the term panpsychism, is the idea that mind is everywhere. So like you kind of characterized it, like there is, you know, just a little bit of mind in, in an atom and a little bit of more mind, you know, as, as you get bigger aggregates of atoms and things like that, presumably you get more mind. Now, I think that's kind of the difference between soft and hard panpsychism is kind of, you know, incoherent. Maybe it's is that one is normal and another is stupid. This is, this is the distinction line. <laughs> there is like distinction line, and on one side you have things that are actually true, yeah. and on the other <laughs> side you have things that things that are actually stupid. Basically, this is the difference between them. Well, yeah. So I w I would call them, uh, and I have said this to you in the past that you know the difference for me between soft and hard panpsychism is the difference between the trivial, i.e., the obviously and self evidently true. And the ridiculous, yeah. So, I mean, basically exactly what you are saying. But when somebody says panpsychism, you don't really know what they mean, and it's not clear if they know what they mean, and it's very difficult to get to that purely through language, you know, purely through a discussion. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very tough in that sense. And it, this relates back, of course, to the whole, you know, levels of analysis versus metaphysics kind of argument which and I'm, I'm still not sure that the, the way i've said that or the way you know that we've discussed it in this conversation makes that clear but the question i'm trying to ask now is is kind of is it not stupid so the thing that to me um like you my default reaction is that this idea is kind of stupid but I want, I'm now trying to trace the genesis of the idea and find out if the difference 
Like the point that people are just arguing is not purely semantic and purely like language based. Like it's it hasn't purely arisen from language. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether it's. I don't know where it comes, you know, in philosophy. Yeah. But it's quite clear where it comes in, like human thought, because it's like essentially saying that everything has. Sorry, what? Hang on, you're breaking up a lot, man. Hold on. Okay. This idea is essentially a mystic idea. Yeah. It's like saying that, you know, soul is everywhere. This is the origin of that idea. It's like, first we became aware that we are conscious. Then we became aware that other people are conscious. Then we kind of like, maybe animals are conscious as well because they behave consciously. And then we like, yeah, definitely everything is conscious. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very ancient idea. And the, you know, the extent to which it's wrapped up in animism, obviously, it's, a, it's basically the same idea. Or even pantheism. Uh, you know, these are all very interesting questions. And here, here's the, the rub of it. Uh, my argument now is that whether or not you think it's stupid or I think it's stupid is actually irrelevant because... Oh, definitely. That's obviously true. Okay. And because it is a very, very potent split, right? It's a very, very big division between, you know, the way a lot of... And we have to admit, these very intelligent, very learned people believe... Um, consciousness is and another huge group of very intelligent very learned people believe consciousness is so it's simply not good enough to say that's stupid the responsibility of a philosopher unfortunately because it's like really really hard work um underappreciated how hard doing that kind of work is is to actually go in and find out where the origin of the split is um, and, you know, you don't have to, I mean, there is a historical component to that, but there's also looking at the split between contemporary groups, where the origin of the split is, and how you can actually patch it up and pass, like, kind of pacify those differences. How can you present the thing such that it is in complete accordance with the reductionistic view and accepting of that, but also takes into account these other ways of speaking about it and other ways of thinking about it? And in so doing, you have to question whether or not it's simply because the... And look, it's also undeniable, and you would completely agree with this, that the current scientific worldview, which is the mainstream reductionistic worldview, which believes that we are very, very close to the final solution, believes that we're very, very close to a final understanding of exactly how it is. And of course, we're going to explain mind. We already know how it is. You know, you would agree that that is a kind of hubris, a kind of arrogance of the present, which has, you know, existed for a long time. Um, what was that? There's that famous Lord Kelvin quote, right? Which is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I can't remember. But we, we just need like, to do in some of the constants. Of yeah, yeah. Um, so people have believed that for a, a really long time. And I think you and I would both agree that, you know, we, we might say that, hey, it, it's kind of possible that that could be true, but there's no particular, you know, you can't guarantee that that's true and you can't rest on your laurels and make that massive assumption because there are such huge holes like there's the huge the biggest question in physics is why these laws still you know that question isn't going to go away anytime soon um and maybe it's an unanswerable question just like you know the metaphysical why question of why mind you know the way Chalmers um formats it formulates it maybe there are unanswerable questions but we can't simply fob them off in my opinion and say, well, they're unanswerable, so so bugger it, let's just, you know, keep doing what we're doing. So I think that there's a, you know, if, if you don't believe... Yeah, but, but you can, like, you know, you can create unanswerable questions. I can create in, you know, quite a few unanswerable questions, and Greek philosophers, they were really good at that, at creating paradoxes. For sure, for sure. So, so. yeah, I of course, man, but that... that 
those questions are not the fundamental questions that still exercise the minds of you know many of the best minds so <laughs> that's a horrible expression but many you know of the most educated and most uh, people who are most motivated to understand the way the world is are still their minds are still exercised by those questions. No one's particularly worried about Zeno's paradoxes, right? Well, I mean, if we... People were quite worried about you know, angels and nature of God for sure. a good thousand years. Sure, sure. And look, you... I mean, that's exactly what a, a, and, you know, an, an arch reductionist would say, and maybe they're right, you know? That's the line that a lot of the people who are your almost least favorite people in the world, I don't even need to name them, but, you know, the <laughs> the anti-religious crowd, that... Is, yeah, yeah, don't even name them, don't even name them. That is their, that's essentially their argument. You know, science is nearing completion. Not that they, of course, they would say that there's a huge amount of stuff that we don't understand, huge amount of specific stuff, massive amount. Yeah, they, yeah, but they would say it's a computational problem. Yeah. Yeah, the principles we have, they would say that we the principles are basically in place and we at least know what kind of principles they are. And by the way, I believe that. But I also think that there's a massive... I, I, I personally don't believe that, I guess. So it's very funny the way that we seem to switch across the dividing line of, of this argument. Um, because, you know, a listener might have got the impression up to now that you are the more reductionist than I, than me, you know, because I am... No, that's not the case. Be a listener, that's not the case. <laughs> so I, what I'm saying is, even if, even if this question about, uh, this kind of metaphysical question that we've been dancing around a little bit, like what is the place of mind in nature would be a way of formulating it. What is the place of teleology in nature is another way of, of formulating it. Even if you believe that, you know, mind and teleology, uh, they just emerge uh, because of, you know, the principles of evolution and whatever, which is, you know, what I've basically believed my entire, you know, adult life. Uh, even if you believe that, there is this huge issue still of the debate surrounding that. And I do believe that a, a fundamental role for the the thinker if you want this is a, this is a kind of ethical principle um it's it's like you know some people really want to um, break down boundaries between the so-called scientifically minded people and the religiously minded people because there's so much conflict in society there's so much misunderstanding there's so much wasted um energy and you know disharmony disunity all of that kind of stuff is created by that so there are those people that are on either side of that debate and absolutely convinced that, you know, of course there's no God or there is a God that still believe that breaking down those boundaries is a very, very worthwhile thing to do. I'm one of those people. I think there's an ethical responsibility that if you are capable, I mean, I, you know, ethical responsibility makes it sound so high minded and stuff, but to some extent, if you're capable and so inclined, like if you're actually interested, you know, I'm, I'm not just interested in what's true. I'm interested in what people think and why they think it. And you're the same. You're not just interested in what's true with a capital yeah, in T. In a way. In a way. Yeah. Well, like I think, for me, for me yeah. it's really hard to, you know, get to understand stuff that I <clears throat> believe is plainly, obviously stupid. Like, it's really hard for me to understand that and to reconcile it with what I thinking and see where the discrepancy starts well absolutely it takes a great deal of effort that most people aren't willing to make to you know open yourself to the point it's almost like breaking it's breaking structures in your own mind to open up to allow yeah, I, I, you know I, I don't believe it actually is that yeah and it, it takes a huge amount of effort and it might even be, dare I say it, a dangerous thing to do. You know, when, when you think of, um, you know, a kind of Jungian conception of, of human psychology, and when you think of like, you know, Joseph Campbell's monomyth, and you think of the way Jordan Peterson talks about this kind of stuff, 
and talks about what the hero does. <coughs> you know, the hero goes out into chaos, you know, confronts chaos, confronts all these challenges, and using the logos, you know, using the word, using rational thought and, you know, reason, brings order into that chaos. And, you know, those guys would all argue that that is the, the kind of deepest idea in, you know, in human cultural evolution and, you know, foundational idea for the major religions and all of that kind of stuff, you know, at the base of all these myths. Um, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. It's just different words. Those, that's putting it into a mythological context. But what we're talking about here is opening yourself to a kind of chaos. You're actually, instead of just solidifying your own worldview, whatever that might be, instead of making that more and more rigid, what you're doing is you are willfully and through force of effort breaking your own worldview. Enough. Yeah, and I mean, like, I'm, this, this is all, you know, a great cause and a great thing to do if you think that at the end you'll perceive a greater thing that you were pursuing before that you started it, right? Yeah, and but I, if a person tells you that the sun is green, yeah. you're asking the person, why do you think so? And the person says, well, because of, inside a bull, there is a heart, and that's why the sun is green. <laughs> like, maybe he's onto something, mm. but that, you have no idea, and there is yeah. no point trying to understand that. Okay, Because I, his assumption, his initial assumption, what he believes in, is wrong. Maybe he uses different metaphor. Maybe green in his lexicon doesn't mean green in your lexicon. Maybe sure. you can come into some sort of conclusion, but it's like just not worth it. <laughs> well, you, you'll be sorry to hear that I think that's a, that's a pretty bad disanalogy. Um, I know what you mean, obviously. Um, you can come up with any number of similar analogies. You could, we could sit here and... Or disanalogies, because they're yeah. my analogies. Let's just agree that all my analogies... Are <laughs> no, not all your analogies are disanalogies, but... Okay, what we're talking about here is something, again, that people, and when I, okay, people in general, but also people who are, you know, to some extent, the most highly educated people in lots of different fields um, mm -hmm. are, are roughly equally divided about these things. And um, we're not talking about yeah, something... Yeah, but, but people are roughly equally divided about plenty of things. Being conservative or Democrat, being, you know, yeah, like Republican Democrat. Exactly, and we being know. Like, you know yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great example. Being or something, or anti-something. Exactly. That's a great example, because, as we've agreed previously on the podcast, neither the Republican nor the Democrat, neither the conservative nor the liberal position is 100% true. And therefore, absolutely agree, exactly. absolutely agree. But that doesn't like you are not, not everybody is entitled. Not, not, I mean, we're all entitled to have opinions, but not everybody's opinion is, you know, worth considering. Because, you know, if somebody who is not a, you know, evolutionary biologist tells me something about evolution, like if, if it's, you know, goes completely against what, you know, evolutionary biology is about, then I would just discredit it straight away because he's he doesn't know what he's talking about, For sure. most likely. Look, to Not necessarily so. Yeah. Not necessarily so. Maybe yeah. he's, you know, Jesus or something. Look, but... look to some extent, of course I know where you're coming from, and you, you can take a very extreme case like the guy saying that the sun is green and... You know, it's it's a it's a reductio ad absurdum. You know, you make the the whole idea of considering other people's opinions sound absurd. Um, but we're not talking about cases like that. We are talking about something more similar to the quote unquote conservative versus quote unquote liberal debate. Um, and we know that each of those worldviews, like the poles of those worldviews, are both wrong. And the truth is actually somewhere much closer to the middle. And the thing is, if you have a very yeah. strong belief about something, whatever it might be, it's going to be very difficult for you to consider alternatives to that belief without making some real effort to make yourself open. And fundamentally, by the way, this is what meditation is about to some extent as well. It's about opening yourself and kind of getting rid of the essences it's like getting rid of your theories about reality opening yourself to reality completely 
um, and trying to just understand it exactly how it is and then coming back with your theories are necessarily changed by that. And that's the same as like, you know, I can use an example from music and I've used this so many times. This is this, exactly the same principle that you and I talk about all the time. It's like you encounter a piece of music and I will use the, the example of Anton Webern's music, right? So Anton Webern is one of the three members... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine with you using yeah. Webern, yes. Okay, so Webern is one of the three members of the second Viennese school, um, first half of the 20th century, um, you know, quote-unquote classical composers. Um, he's one of the two famous students of Arnold Schoenberg. And these guys, they started composing music in a language that to most people seemed radically new. Schoenberg, Webern's teacher, he wanted to emancipate the dissonance. He wanted to create music that had no tonal center, atonal music. And this was very difficult for people to listen to because, you know, the harmonic structure of music is what they were used to. Now, Webern, you know, I'm not going to go on and get too detailed into, into the, the evolution of this music, but Webern, he took this to a, a whole new level of novelty in some sense because not only was he writing atonal music, music without any tonal center, he wrote these little miniatures which were, you know, in some cases, you know, he has, he has things like five pieces for orchestra and things like that. And each of the pieces is under a minute in length. Uh, so they go by incredibly quickly and they're atonal. They don't have any of the things or they initially appear not to have any of the normal components of music that people know how to latch onto, like harmony or, you know, a straightforward rhythm or anything like that, and they're over before you, you know, even get yourself into a into a um, a listening frame of mind in some cases. And so people are very inclined when they hear this kind of stuff to say, "Oh, that's just a bit of noise," or to use my mother's phrase, "plinky plonk." You know, that's just plinky plonk. Um, <laughs> the thing is, when you can open yourself to art like that, sometimes. There's this incredible reward that comes from opening yourself to it. And Webern is absolutely profound, you know, it's absolutely incredible music. So if you can get your consciousness into the right space at the right time and listen to those pieces, it's profoundly rewarding. And what you actually find is that they have way more in common with music that you are familiar with. I mean, if you've, you know, listened to plenty of late Beethoven and, you know, all the tradition that... The, if you've only listened to Britney Spears, you might find that difficult. But um, what you find when you open yourself to such a piece of art is that it's much more similar, that it's evolutionary, not revolutionary, um, to use Schoenberg's term. You can now suddenly map Yeah, but, but you, can, you, can't, you can't really use, you know, like, I mean, I see your example, but in my opinion, it's a disanalogy because, you know, when you're, we're talking about the way reality is, it's different from, you know, us making something artificial. Like, you know, we have, I mean, like music, you can essentially, it's essentially you no know, piece of culture, right? It's like, you know, our social agreement about what music should be. We agreed on that, then we can alter that, and then we have new agreement about what music but is. But so are our stories about what reality is. Those are pieces of culture too. You cannot deny that, and nor yeah. would you deny that outside of this debate. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not denying that, but there's still some reality at the basis level. Of course, there is still some, you know, the way things actually are. And it's coherent. Well, there is, well, there is no such a thing as the actual music. We can agree on what music is and what's not, but there is, in reality, music as such, like the only level of explanation that music exists is within our, you know, cultural reality. Yeah, but you have no direct access. That's very true. And of course, it's a dis... I mean, all analogies are disanalogies in some sense. Um, it's kind of a disanalogy. Of course, that's true. But you and everybody else have no direct access to what the nature of reality is. Like, look at theoretical physics. You know, that's not direct access to what's really going on. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. You know, so... So it, it becomes, to me, to me, it's not a disanalogy for, for my purposes, clearly. Um, but I, I, I've referred to that as the ethics of the audience. So that if you want to understand a piece of art, 
and, and it's not just a piece of art, I'm going to get there. If you want to understand a piece of art, um, there's a certain ethics associated with that. In all, you have to become a good audience member um, in order to have a chance of really appreciating what a piece of art is all about. So you have to open yourself to it. If you just glance at a painting and be like, that's not a painting, then you haven't done it justice. If you, you know, hear Webern just go past but don't really listen to it, and then you say, oh, Webern's terrible, you haven't done justice to it. The same ethic applies you know, all the way across the spectrum of human understanding, which is that it, it's just as, as an irreligious person like myself, if I want to understand what religious people think, I have to open and why they believe the things that they do. And I think this is a worthwhile endeavor because of the causal impact of misunderstanding. And that's key with this whole consciousness thing as well, by the way. And that's why the sun is green thing is also not a good analogy in my opinion, because the causal impact of this guy's argument of the sun, this this lone wacko who thinks that the sun is green, um, is not big. Yeah, I mean, you have your lone wacko who says the sun is green, but you have quite influential wackos who say that there is no free will, right? It's equally stupid to say there is no free yeah, will hey, because hey, it goes hey. counter our experiential data. Yes, but you know you... the fact that you know, like sun, the, the sun is green, also goes counter Ivan, to our experiential Ivan. data. So, on, can, you I know, need... like, you might, you might have a cult. You might have, like, quite a few people who are, like, actually, yeah, I know, actually, the sun is green. And then you will have, you know, people who have no idea. They will be like, yeah, there is no free will. You know, science shows us that there is no free will. Yeah, Especially you... scientists who don't work in the field where that, you know, is related to that question but, at all. But, Ivan, so... you have asked me, you have asked me this very week to write for our blog, not just a yeah, 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 no, like you know, yes, but Hang we on. definitely have to, you know, address it. I am not saying that we should not address it. Remember. What I'm saying is that trying to understand, you know, free will is slightly is you know is not as stupid as thinking that you know atoms have consciousness. Like there are you know gradations of stupidity. You've asked me to write for our blog, not just my dialogues about free will, which you think, you know, maybe you enjoy them. I don't know if you do, but you want a step by step refutation of every argument, every common argument against the existence of free will for our blog. So you agree completely that in, even though you th I mean, you love to throw the word stupid out all the time. It's not stupid to believe that there's no free will. There are very complex and, and rigorous and intelligent arguments against the existence of free will. The only reason I have... Yeah, but complexity, you know, complexity and intelligence, like the cleverness of the argument doesn't mean that it's not stupid. You know, like arguments for the fact that there, are, there can be only a thousand angels on the, on the you know, tip of the pin can also be really clever and really sophisticated doesn't make them less stupid. Yeah, agreed, obviously. But the very fact that you you want me to write this piece because Yeah, yeah, no, I want like I want, you know, I want us to have a some say some, you know, uh simple a way to kind of, you know, point people towards what, you know, we think about the free will and what you know how we can respond i mean you being the guy who thinks more about it than i do by far so that's why i'm asking you so you basically uh, agree yeah. therefore that it is worthwhile engaging with arguments of great causal potency powerful arguments. definitely if you okay. put it if you put it that way i agree with but so that's exactly what i'm saying about the the rest of it that this remains uh, this idea of how mind, you know, what is the place of mind in nature? You know, no matter how stupid you might think some of the arguments are, um, it remains one of the biggest questions in the human storytelling, the human endeavor to understand reality. This is a fundamental question. And someone like Daniel Dennett, who I have absolutely massive respect for, as I've said incessantly, I think he basically hits the nail on the head in so many ways, you know. Um, however, his attitude is to simply not engage with the other half, is to just write them off 
and to say, oh, well, that's just stupid regressive thinking. Uh, and it's exactly the attitude. And I mean, let's not forget, much as I love the guy, that Daniel Dennett is one of the new atheists. He is by far the more moderate and reasonable in comparison to Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. But that argument that he has against, you know, people who, who want to look at the, the metaphysical underpinning of mind in nature, that argument that they're just regressive, the dismissal of their argument is exactly what Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins do to religion in general. And you find that to be completely unacceptable. And it's exactly... Yeah, but, I, but not, not only that, I have like larger problems with them. I have more problems with their argument more than that I have problems with them being dismissive. But, yeah, okay, no, fair enough. I'm, like, point taken. Okay, okay. Anyway, yeah, we shouldn't get bogged down in that, but I think this this idea of... Of course, I think it's an important idea. This idea of the ethics of audience, it's a moral argument. I mean, you've been wanting to talk about morals um, a bit more than we have. This is a moral argument. You know, morals... Um, of course, it's a moral argument, hence I call it the ethics of audience. But it's about empathy, it's a, or sympathy, if you want. It's about understanding what other, where other people are coming from. So it's about being able to understand, basically, other people, why they think what they think, who they are. And, you know, one of the obvious ways of, of, of approaching that is, is through art. And really, that's the way that I've come to this being very deeply embodied, um, embedded in my in my philosophy as the ethics of audience, I've come to that through through art, as you know. I mean, I see I see how it applies here. Like, I agree that yes, okay, okay, we probably need to engage with a person claiming that the sun is green if that person has enough followers, and then they all say, yeah, the sun is actually green, and screw you, motherfuckers. We don't see that the you know the white or whatever yellow color of the sun is just an illusion and reality it is pure green color. Yeah, no, I see. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and again, I obviously think that the the um, the discussion of the place of mind in nature is 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 again of a, a different order of argument to that. Uh, I do think that we're not there yet with obviously we're not there yet with with scientific descriptions of nature and what i really want to what i'm trying to understand now is how teleology how evolution fits in nature right at the bottom you see i don't again i don't believe in in privileged uh levels of analysis so as far as i'm concerned evolution, um, natural selection, the insights of that, its legitimization of teleology at one level does call into question the lack of, the alleged lack of directionality at other levels of analysis. And of course, you know, the very first piece I wrote for our blog, Permanent Evolution, is a statement of that exact idea, is that our metaphysics should be evolutionary as well, or there's at least a strong argument to be made that they should be. And of course, I think that Lee Smolin's arguments, which clearly trend in this direction, well, they don't trend in this direction, they are explicitly of this kind, need to be taken seriously. Um, and this maybe speaks to some of the issues that we have resolving questions in fundamental physics. And this very much relates to the existence of free will and the existence of mind in nature. See, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying, you know, it, it's the goal of coherence, right? It's the goal of science. Science fundamentally assumes that nature is unified, that nature is coherent. So I'm simply asking the question, and others are asking this question too, is that if we have teleology and directionality at this level in evolution, well, how is that reflected in the other levels of analysis? And how can we reconcile that? You know, people have... Um, obviously, Einstein was, was, you know, an incredibly powerful thinker, 
And not only did he come up with theories of great uh, predictive power, he was a great communicator of those theories as well. He was a great writer. He was, a, he was charismatic. He was a great philosopher as well as a great scientist. But so many people are still very enamored of the block universe um, that emerges from relativity. But I think that there are more than enough reasons to question that kind of view of things. So when I, when I do my refutation of arguments against free will, I will not only be arguing the compatibilist line, which is essentially that, well, you know, it's the common sense argument, which is that it doesn't matter whether uh, the universe is deterministic or whether it's a block universe or whatever, because at our level of existence, we are clearly agents and yes, there's the unconscious. Yes, there's genetics. Yes, there are all these constraints on our free will, but none of them are absolute. So we still have a degree of control there. I'll not only be making those arguments, I will also be attacking all the arguments from physics. And I'm not saying, I'm never saying that this is the way it is. I'm not saying that there is such a thing as libertarian free will, which for those who don't know is the idea that... Um, essentially the universe is not deterministic and that we are actually creating the future through our actions. I'm not saying that that's exactly how it is. I'm just saying that we don't have a good enough reason to believe that it's not somehow like that. And, I, you know, I have detailed arguments as to why none of the arguments against that kind of thing really hold up to very close scrutiny. So that's just all I'm trying to do. And it, it, therefore, if I want to do that kind of thing, I have to go deeply into, say, like the panpsychist literature. I have to consider things from all these different points of view. I mean, you're, you're deeply interested in, 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 Hindu, in Hinduism. And obviously, that's a mentalist uh, philosophy, which believes that the mind is the, the fundamental um, substance from which everything else is, is, is built. And I think uh -huh. those, those are not scientific frameworks but I think the insights that are generated from Hinduism and from Buddhism and from deep meditative experiences and experiences with psychedelics and all that kind of stuff, I, you know, I've always been of, of the view, and of course this still forms a big part of my view, which is that that's just the power of the mind. You know, the mind can do incredible things, um, which it didn't necessarily, they're almost epiphenomenal in some sense because we didn't evolve to have that kind of experience in the first place. But then, and we can touch on group selection here, our capacity for having those experiences became a very, very important part of our cultural evolution, um, our evolution as groups of humans and hence religions and, and all of those frameworks. But I think that those experiences, just as I think our experience of time actually reflects something true about the physics of the universe. And I also maintain, and sorry, I'll let you speak in a second. Uh, I maintain that as a monist, as someone who believes that reality is unified and is all made of the same stuff, it's very, very hard when you think really deeply about that kind of stuff to escape the idea. The arrow of time is real and we are organisms. We are sentient, aware creatures that move along the arrow of time. And it is completely, in my view, here's me saying stupid, I don't want to say stupid, but I don't think there's particularly compelling reason to believe that we are not sentient creatures moving along the arrow of time and that that's as real as any description you could have of reality. Hold on. So yours, no, like I didn't, like the last thing, the very last thing I didn't really understand. So you're saying that it's not reasonable to believe that we are the uh like moving we're sentient creatures moving along the arrow of time or you're saying no, no, the no. reverse i'm saying it's not reasonable to reasonable to believe that we are not that i'm saying that every yeah, okay. yeah. Fair enough. no good that's good okay yeah okay nice so that you know the arrow of time is a real phenomenon that, that cannot be doubted um and so any any argument that time is an illusion 
Um, yeah, there are, there are ways in which time is an illusion, just as there are ways in which consciousness is an illusion. But it is nonetheless a real phenomenon, as real as anything, that we have consciousness. I mean, that's the most real thing. And yeah. that we move along that arrow of time, which is a real thing. Processes in our brain are not time reversible. They go in a certain direction, and thus we experience yeah, man, time. Yeah, but I mean, everything, everything is not time reversible. As far as we, human beings on planet Earth, are concerned, none is time reversible. And that's the laws so. of physics have to account for that, man. That's exactly what I'm saying. The fact that the laws of physics are not, like the most fundamental laws of physics are time reversible is a deep issue with the laws of physics. Yeah, but it's the issue with physics, not the issue with reality. Like, you know... <clears throat> yeah, exactly. What I kind of, you know, like the whole this consciousness, free will, you know, yeah. physicalism, panpsychism stuff yeah. that uh, like I find fascinating <laughs> is that people will be like, hey, we looked at the box and we didn't find anything, you know, nice there. Therefore, there is nothing there. Mm. Like we looked at the laws of physics and, you know, as much as we, you know, can study them in 200 years, I'm pretty sure that that's not how the reality actually is because, I mean, 200 years of human uh, studying is not anything it's it's a very few uh years right we've, we've done pretty I mean, well very we've we can... done pretty well hmm? we've done pretty well for yeah. 200 years we've done pretty well but i mean still and then we can say hey our laws don't don't uh you know account for time therefore time is an illusion like eh, you know exactly i mean that that's yeah, all no, i'm no, saying no, no. yeah i know you and i we are on the same page here but a very very large percentage we're on of people, the same thing yeah a very large percentage of people including we're paragons of reason we're paragons <laughs> of reason in the sea of stupidity <laughs> assault like assault by you know the fans the psychist people the free will deniers the new atheists and just like but i mean we hold our ground we like we will defend our small patch of earth from all this guys yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> obviously, I know you're being somewhat facetious, although to some extent, that is how you see the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, like in some some very small percentage, that's actually exactly how I see the world, yes. <laughs> I mean, th there's that possibility, and again, with meditation, <clears throat> we, we, we get there, um, and I think Yuval Noah Harari is a really, really interesting guy. Uh, in terms of bringing these arguments from meditation, like meditation-derived perspectives to the study of human history, to some extent, you can look at almost anything that humans do and believe and occupy the perspective of that is just ridiculous storytelling. It's all storytelling, and some of it is causally potent, and some of it you know, people universally agree that that's ridiculous, like the idea that the sun is green, and other things you, people almost universally agree is clearly true, but on some level, it's all kind of nonsense. And, um, you know, it is, it is a refreshing and, I think, kind of necessary, and it, it's, it's part of the, uh, you know, the thing that you don't want me to name again, um, the ethics of audience. Uh, it's part of it's 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 very much bound in with that that you can you can kind of take a break even from your own storytelling you can go and stand over somewhere else and look back at all that stuff and just be like well like this is all why do I care about this this is all completely ridiculous stuff you know huh. yeah pretty much but then you know like there is I mean there is certainly no questions that you know bear the actual consequence in you know in our lives but there are certain you know questions that bear no consequence like you know whether the the you know free will exists as a thing or whether it's completely an illusionary thing unless we actually believe that it somewhat bears little consequence on the way we behave actually, because we cannot possibly behave without free will well i don't entirely and so agree that, the no. panpsychism is like another you know like if i mean that can be like that can be somewhat causal but that's beside the point right you still will be acting you if you will be acting you know without belief you will still will be acting so for sure yeah but i don't let's see not get these... muddied there but panpsychism well, I... panpsychism yeah so panpsychism doesn't have any 
causal effect on the way we behave and perceive the world. But isn't like, that like saying... You know, whether, whether insects have consciousness, that's a good question. Whether, you know, uh, crustaceans have consciousness, that's a you know, legit question. Whether cells have consciousness, maybe that's a legit question. But whether atoms have consciousness has no effect on the way we perceive or live our lives at all. Isn't that a bit like saying, you know, fundamental physics or, you know, the question of why the universe is the way it is or whether God exists has no causal significance? The question of whether God exists has been one of the no, most no, it's, significant it's, it's, yeah, well, I mean, uh, like, there, are, there is a difference here. I mean, I can see how you can argue what, you know, you kind of uh, pointed that you can argue. But... Um, I mean, we can't even study consciousness in ourselves. So, we the point when we will be able to, you know, study the consciousness, even if it exists, in freaking molecules is like thousands of years away. So, like, right now, it basically seems impossible that you will ever be able to do that. I mean, even if it's there. So, from my perspective, just this is like you know positions like that the ideas like that they uh, like i don't see how you know they are bringing anything to the you know table of scientific explanation of the world because it's essentially you know <clears throat> what people are you know uh, battling not battling well what why people don't like philosophy is because philosophers talk about nonsense you know philosophers argues argue about words and philosophers just uh, all they do basically as far as you know normal people are concerned is just you know talk about things that are not really there but that's so all that people this do. is exactly that this is exactly that case you know yes but people arguing about you know things that aren't there we <laughs> I think we just agreed that that's essentially what people do in general uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, people do that um, in general, but we um, have, you know, science, like, you know, science, um, scientific approach to study consciousness. And in my opinion, in that scientific approach to study consciousness, the things that we can't possibly, you know, prove or disprove or even consider, uh, you know, in the foreseeable future aren't worth, you know, whatever, discussing, studying within that framework. I mean, we, like you and I, we can discuss it, you know, we can discuss it here, right? Or, you know, people can discuss it still. But writing books about it and, you know, perceiving as if those books would be treated seriously, this is, in my opinion, like just a waste of time, basically. <laughs> um. I think, you know, there, within the scientific framework, look, man, within the scientific framework, you know, Hinduism can be doing that. You know, religious people can be doing that. I, as an individual, can believe that atoms have consciousness and I can make, you know, a sect that would follow my beliefs that atoms are conscious. Like, we, we can do that, but bringing it into science and, you know, thinking that it should be treated seriously there, I don't understand why. Well, I think a lot of people would agree with that. I think that there's a way in which I would agree with that. Um, it really depends on what you are trying to explain and trying to understand. Um, so it's like it's like a kettle uh, that you know is flying around whatever Jupiter or Saturn. It's like that. Maybe there is kettle. Maybe there is no kettle. We have no way of showing one way or another. Well, but you understand that the reason Bertrand Russell coined that argument is... Yeah, is I know exactly why an anti -theological that argument. argument. And um, funnily enough, Bertrand Russell um, is one of the very interesting uh, people to argue that physics is completely silent on essentially the... Well, on anything beyond the structural interactions between things. So it's completely silent on, you know, the experiential nature of those structural interactions between things, if there was such a thing. So I don't think he would have agreed with you. Um, 
and he all that that was not a worthwhile thing of thinking about. So I mean, there are there are, it depends on your conception of science here as well. And I think you know you have typically taken a very broad conception of science. You're choosing for the sake of discussion now to take a much more narrow conception. Um, not, not, yeah, not necessarily, but you know something that we can test. You know something that we can you know objectively investigate. And our ability to objectively investigate the consciousness of atoms is like yeah, not not only there, but I mean it's just but you're just ca- not you're, there. you're characterizing you're talking about hard panpsychism, um, which and I would completely agree with that. But the kind of soft panpsychism I think is actually already implicit in the way that we study consciousness and the way that we study you know, well, the way we study consciousness. Yeah, but um, I mean, if you, if I understand your division correctly, that yeah. soft, soft <clears throat> panpsychism just basically it says that, you know, your consciousness experience arises from matter, which is obviously true. Like, if if that's what it is, then I don't see the reason to, you know, um, differentiate it from any other material, not materialistic, but from any other, you know, like scientific worldview, because... It's just the way we see reality. We think that consciousness arises, like there is, you know, a uh, material vehicle for consciousness, which is brain. Brain is made out of molecules. Therefore, there is some uh, part of consciousness that is made by this exact molecule or that exact molecule. Whether that is, you know, the special time spatial part of consciousness or a trait of consciousness or whatever. So, but like, I don't see why we need some specific stuff to deal with this because this is the way we just view reality within science yeah it's just that many people within science who do view reality that way don't realize that they view reality that way and that's why we have a lot of vestigial dualism in science because people that is very true so it therefore becomes very important in terms of being an under laborer for the way people formulate questions that then go on to be, you know, tested within scientific framework. I mean, that's what philosophy of science is. So, you know, I when you talk about this heart, like you, you kind of, um, you know, you do your 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 reduction of the thing to studying the consciousness of atoms. Uh, uh, you know, of course, that sounds completely ridiculous when you talk about it like that. Um, that is ridiculous. But when you talk about people you know, acknowledging that a kind of panpsychism has to be true for a physicalist framework to get off the ground, you're talking about trying to erode their notions of dualism. And that becomes a very, very important question, not only for the way they formulate research questions into consciousness and, I mean, it could be, depending on what they were researching, but certainly the existence of free will, it becomes a very important question for that. It also does become an important question for the way people live their lives. So, I mean, I wasn't necessarily trying to defend it. I mean, I don't think you were accusing me of that either, but as something that is really important for a scientific research agenda per se, it's important for a philosophical agenda, definitely. And I think that the philosophical agenda, of which science is a part, um, is, you know, obviously of vast importance in many, many different ways. And I know you wouldn't, you know, you were saying that that's the, some people think philosophers just argue about words and all that you know, you were characterizing philosophy from the view of a non-philosopher, but I know that that's not how you actually see things, that you understand that it is very, very important for science as well as for life in general that people, you know, unpack concepts, understand the way these things work, understand that all their observations in science are theory-laden, you know, that they don't make yeah, I mean, I like like this. Yeah. I completely agree with. So I think uh, that this this so, sits but in like, there. You know, Sorry, go on. But like for for the specifics of consciousness, right? Mm. So for the last, you know, however long since humans are you know inhabiting this planet and they kind of realize that they are conscious, uh, we 
create different theories to explain that whether it's souls whether it's you know spark of god whether it's gnosis whether there is nothing there whether there is something there like and so on and so right now we're at the position where we kind of believe that you know brain explains that in a way that at least you know it all takes place in the brain and it doesn't take place in the guts and you know probably consciousness is just like the activity of neurons Unless you are really weird, you know, if you are a scientist, you kind of like, this is the case. Or if you're a philosopher, you're like, yeah, this is probably the case. Unless you are somewhat weird. But this, this but still has a really... This is the only thing that... We, hold on. This is the only thing that we agree on. And this, this notion didn't come from philosophy. It came from, you know, uh, whatever, biology, for the sake of argument. It came from the studies of, you know, decapitation, you know, whatever, destruction of specific uh, brain um, parts and so on. But like, hang on. In it, the philosophy, though, <laughs> yeah. Observation has always been part of philosophy, as you know. And I think that you, yeah, I mean, you are arbitrarily yeah, okay. splitting things in, in, in ways that you yourself normally don't. So, I mean, the idea that the brain is the seat of consciousness or that, or that consciousness is, um, you know, purely produced in a physical framework is an ancient idea as you know like the atomists believe yeah that, for example yeah yeah, and, yeah and no i mean like come on man. i wouldn't i wouldn't say that you know science is not a part of philosophy i would obviously say that science is a part of philosophy however you know there is uh, this kind of you know philosophy of mind that you know argues what consciousness is about and my my problem with it my honest problem with that is i don't see them progressing like i see that here and now you know people would uh, come up with the really, you know, good explanation for specific phenomenon, you know, like Dennett's, you know, multi-draft idea of, you know, consciousness and memory. Like, this is a great explanation. However, I don't see people catching up in the majority, right? If you have a, you know, like, <laughs> you have genetic, you know, the rise of genetics. When you have the rise of genetics, everybody's like, yeah, okay, genetics. You know, you still have some morphologists now that obviously would disagree that, you know, genes are all there is, but there are minority. While in the in the field of uh, philosophy of mind, nobody agrees pretty much with anybody. Yeah, because because much of the uh, the quote unquote hard science, <coughs> particularly the physics, which the reductionist framework is, again, supposed to be grounded in is silent about those issues. And that's why there's still a lot of flexibility in philosophy of mind. But look, I think you're just making a really, an arbitrary separation that will not hold up. Like for example, is cognitive science the treating of um, brain activity as an information science? Um, is that a branch of philosophy of mind? Or is that a branch of quote unquote science? It's, you know, it's both. You can't separate them in, in any particularly rational way. You can draw an arbitrary line and say one thing or the other, but I don't see that as a helpful distinction. In fact, I see it as an unhelpful distinction. And it's kind of the, the kind of distinction that I would like to see broken down and that, you know, you would like to see broken down. So it, yeah. maybe you've changed your view on that, but that's always been your view. Um, so no, 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 I haven't changed my views on that. I, my question, I think, at large. I mean, I'm not mm. saying that you know philosophy of mind is not doing a good job in general. My, what I'm saying is that philosophy of mind is not doing any job on the nature of consciousness and what consciousness is and whether it's you know illusion or not illusion or whatever the crap. Like basically, the as far as I'm aware, uh, philosophy of mind does nothing to uh, <laughs> move in any direction. On this subject, it just like you know proliferates the amount of written words on that subject, and I'm not saying that maybe we should be doing that or maybe we should not doing that. This is beside the point. What I'm saying is that maybe we cannot progress past this without any you know like experiments. And you can say that hey, you know, then we need theories to you know start our experiments. Maybe that's true. And to but interpret them. I don't see results, yeah, yeah, I don't see how we can go further from this point towards the um uh, like some you know 
agreement on what consciousness is and how to, you know, address the hard problem of consciousness and whether it even exists. Because essentially, you know, every uh, person who studies consciousness draws from his subjective experience. And by drawing from his subjective experience, he changes that subjective experience. And so if one person says that consciousness is attention, maybe he, you know, like he makes it more so. And if another person says then, well, no, consciousness is memory, then he, he, within himself, at least as far as his experience is concerned, makes it even more so. And so those people can't agree in principle because they are studying different things because they are different. So that thing that you just expressed, which to some extent I agree with, you know, if you take the simple statement that the study of consciousness, uh, the study of one's own consciousness through introspection changes that which is being studied, then that is a philosophical claim that has huge impact on any scientific study of consciousness. And I don't see how you could possibly deny that. So, I mean, would you deny that? No, I wouldn't deny that, obviously. Okay. So but, you made I mean, a philosophical that's somewhat claim. different from, you know... I'm not... Like, again, as you know, as you know, I'm not saying that philosophy is useless. Obviously, I would be the last person to say that. And I'm not even saying that, you know, philosophy of mind is useless. I'm just saying that this specific instance, like this specific problem, the nature of consciousness is a, you know, bog or is like a Maya... Yeah. Because specifically because we have no common ground, like we can't have the common ground there. And because we can't have common ground there, we will always disagree. I mean, not you and me, but like, you know, different yeah. philosophers of mine will always disagree, even if they appear to be agreeing from the, you know, third party perspective. Because it's more like, you know, they can't reconcile their experience because their experience is obviously different. There's an extent to which that's true. Um, there's also a great extent to which, you know, all consciousnesses will have, you know, at the risk of getting all platonic, uh, there is an essence of consciousness which is uh, dictated by the structure of the brain and the nature of the kinds of information processing that can go on in the brain. And, I mean, those are all very, you know, questions for science and also questions for philosophy to, again, refine the questions. And, yeah, there's, there's so much to say about what you're saying, and I'm tired now and I don't think we can get into it, but um, basically my view is, I mean, to some extent I completely agree with you. Like, it, of course it's a, it's a Maya, you know, a lot of, a lot of the um, controversy in philosophy of mind, um, as in human thought in general, by the way, but it's... it's exemplified by philosophy of mind for some of the reasons that you've just highlighted a lot of the controversy there um is like an Ouroboros again it's a snake biting its own tail it's controversy that was generated in the debate and now people are debating the results of the debate and then you have to debate those results and all of that if you don't connect it to science then it will always go on like that but if you are a philosopher which stays in touch with science um, then that needn't happen. And we can see philosophers like Daniel Dennett and Andy Clark and many others who are very, very in touch with cognitive science and neuroscience and who have made predictions, who have formulated questions, who have interpreted data in ways that have substantially influenced, influenced those fields. Um, that there, there is a great deal of progress being made there. And the philosophers of mind are intimately tied up in that so i basically quite disagree with with the overarching thread of what you were saying um and you know fundamentally uh i think that some of the arbitrary divisions that have arisen in the debate like between you know soft panpsychism and you know the more mainstream physicalism which are actually the same thing I think that breaking down those boundaries will have a quite large effect on the way we are, on the way we think about these things, um, which has an effect on, on everything else. You know, it can have a societal effect, but it can also certainly yeah. have an effect on the way we investigate them scientifically. So, yeah, that's I th absolutely. I guess, I guess. 
I guess what I'm saying in like my like I don't know, and it's not that I'm saying that we should stop, you know, doing that. I mean, I don't think we can stop doing that because those people won't stop doing that. But <laughs> I guess, like you know, our uh, uh, like agenda is to bring, you know, the resources, the resources, our, our.